one day when I was a kid, I was sitting in our hangout with a couple of guitar player buddies of mine, drinking uh, out of a pitcher of $1.75 Budweiser. It went up to $2.25, but five bucks would still get you through the night at our favorite burrito joint uh, music venue combination. And a third buddy walked up, and as he reached in his pocket, he confidently asserted that he had unlocked the key mystery of the universe. He began to explain, so you know, we all wonder where those guitar picks go. You never see them laying around and they just disappear. He goes, now I know. My mom called me over to the house because somebody was there working on the dryer and found these and he came out with two giant handfuls of guitar picks. And he said, come on in, boys. The water is fine. They're probably all picks I stole from you anyway. And it seemed like the greatest boon and treasure we'd ever dipped into, in addition to solving that great mystery of where those treasured objects go after you lose track of them. You know, picks are a very particular thing uh, to, to some guitar players, not everyone, but I, for instance, have particular picks that go with particular guitars. And they're mostly with types, but the, I, I can't play bluegrass on an acoustic guitar without what my daughter refers to as birdie picks. So I got a little eagle on them, these giant uh, triangular picks. They just seem to have the right leverage for that up and down picking. Guitar Center's got me hooked on these expensive picks that I have to order now, and they have a little fingernail file to shape them, and they're smoother on one side than the other. You gotta hold them in the, in the same orientation or in the same, the upside's gotta always be up where they don't feel right. You know, they create a connection with your body and uh, an object that you spend a lot of time with in your hands, uh, you know, it, it, you develop a kind of uh, relationship to it. I know that sounds weird, you know, but just think about it. Think about, like, the way your phone feels. And when you pick up somebody else's, it's different. Your car keys, pocket knife. We also, I think, like with a thing like a pocket knife, we connect it to particular people in our lives, you know? Like, uh, you know, like my granddad, I think of in terms of his old buck knife. I have the small version of it. I always connected that object to him. And, um, and I uh, expect to see it again someday and to stumble, stumble upon it. It seems like the return of the of the intimate, familiar, beloved object is like the, the opposite or the antithesis of, uh, of Freud's sense of the return of the repressed, right? The thing that you don't want to come back comes back to you with a sense of familiarity and strangeness at the same time, what he wants to call the uncanny, and that's uh, unsettling to you. But I tell you, when you get a handful of guitar picks back out of your mom's dryer, you're the king of the world. There's a 
cool Robert Earl Keane song where he talks about how he goes in a bar and he's broke. He didn't cash his paycheck before he went into the bar and got back in town and doesn't have, you know, money to buy around. And then he got his hands in his pockets of a jacket he hasn't worn in a long time. She's got cold in there and he found two 20s and a 10 and he's like on top of the world again. It's like, bam, I got that thing back that I that he had. I like the idea that he has a paycheck in his pocket that he can't cash too because it's not like he's broke. It's just a misplaced thing. You have a thing that you that you know you have but you don't have access to it. Where's that thing I set down? I do this all the time. I'm super absent-minded. I'll, I, I've made I'm these organizers for my workbench that have helped with this because I'll stand there and I'll set down a tool and do something else and it'll be gone. I've developed a method of I clean up until I find it, which actually helps a lot. It's a pretty good trick. Um, that way I stay more organized in general. But sometimes, like, I set it in some crazy place. Like, wow, how did it get there, you know? You want that object back. But, you know, I would also assert that you still have it. I mean, I know how those picks feel. Those birdie picks, they get uh, too slick, and they're no good, and then I'll often throw them down. Like, sometimes on, on stage, I'll, like, throw them down and grind them around under my boot and pick them back up and put a little texture on them. And uh, I can see the scratchings in some of those. I've got this cool little brass pencil sharpener. It's really a high-quality little trifle. Well, I don't have it. I lost it. My kid gave it to me, and she knew that I would treasure that, and I lost it. I feel terrible for losing it. But I can still feel in my hand the texture of that knurled brass so, you know, I still have it, I guess. I don't know. There's a kind of tragedy to misplaced things, but on the other hand, I guess you still have them. I don't know if you know the novel and novella, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. It's not something that really gets taught that much anymore, I don't think. Maybe it does. It's not really my field, but it used to be standard, like, you know, AP English curriculum early on, and that there's a long... Uh, reflection on rivets. You know, part of the deal is this this guy, a, a sea captain, goes upriver to take possession of a broken down steamship and he needs to get it going to go find this guy named Kurtz. A movie Apocalypse Now is made after this, by the way, which is a good movie, hard to watch. But um, And anyway, he he gets up to the ship and it's got pieces of of steel or iron, I don't know, given the time frame, it might even be iron, but they're plates and they're riveted on and he's uh, short of rivets and he goes on this long meditation about how, you know, he says, you kicked a rivet loose at every second in the station yard, you know. Rivets by heaven, rivets to get to work, to stop the whole rivets I wanted. You know, and he talks about how there are just cases of them downriver and they're just a an ordinary item, so ordinary that you wouldn't bother to pick one up off the ground, but then when you need them, it's a, you know, my kingdom for a horse kind of situation. Or it's the end of McTeague, if you know that novel, where, uh, you know, 
Marcus and McTeague are fighting over gold, and then they're like, oh, I better fight over water. That's kind of a different issue, though, because that's really kind of like uh, the California story right there. But, you know, Marlowe needs those rivets. It's kind of interesting, though, at the end of that, of that first chapter where he's talking about that, he finally just gives up. He's like, I had given up worrying myself about rivets. One's capacity for that kind of folly, folly is more limited than you would suppose. I said, hang and let things slide. I had plenty of time for meditation, and now and then I would give some thought to Kurtz. I wasn't very interested in him. No, still, I was curious to see whether this man, who had come out equipped with moral ideas of some sort, would climb to the top after all, and how he would set about his work when there. So he turns his uh, attention to the mission of finding Kurtz, and he just realizes, like, I don't have rivets, so I've got to let them go, and I've got to find a new solution. And yet the novel itself kind of undercuts that assertion because it's, it's told as a reflection. The deal is they're on the Nelly, a cruising yawl. They're waiting for the tide to change so they can make their way up the Thames. And he tells this story. So it's, a, it's a, the fundamental setup of the, of the text that it's told retrospectively. And he's still pretty hung up on those rivets and that idea of the tragedy of a misplaced item. But again, I want to assert that it's there in the text, so it's there in his mind, it's there in his story, and in some ways it's still there. You know, what we possess and how we possess it, I think, is a really interesting question. There's a Tom Waits song. I think it's great. My wife uh, claims it's her favorite song. I mean, <laughs> claims. I mean, she says it is. I'm sure it is. I don't think she's lying. Um, it was played at our wedding. Our dear friend walked in the church and played it and walked out. It was pretty moving, actually. Um, it's on Mule Variations from 1999, which is a great, a great album on its own. But it's called Take It With Me. And it's kind of a meditation on, you know, what you take with you in life. And it comes to a, a conclusion that, that you know, I guess is, is uh, obvious enough. I mean, I think that the deal with something you might want to call a cliche is that it might also be just profoundly true. You know, and it's a song about like, I'm going to take love with me is the only thing I'm going to take with me when I go. But it's also kind of crazy because it seems to suggest something deeply spiritual beyond that, that you actually will take that love with you, that your memory is connected to these objects that uh, come to symbolize that love, but those memories through that love, are going to be taken with you to the next world. There's a great image on it. Um, I'm all broken down on the side of the road. I've never been alive or more alive or alone. I've worn the faces off all the cards. I'm going to take it with me when I go. He, he keeps repeating that line. or Not always, but he repeats it several times. And uh, that's really interesting because, uh, you know, the cards are not legible anymore. What they bear is the imprint of his use, like those guitar picks. And because he's 
used them so much, they're firmly implanted in his mind, and he doesn't even really need to read them. They don't need legibility. They need a tactile uh, quality to be connected to his memory. And because he's internalized those in his body, the same way that he has his love, I guess this is for his wife Kathleen, I assume they wrote it together, um, he's going to take that with him to the next world. All kinds of fascinating images of of uh, things you take with you and how you know them. You know, I mean, like there's an image of the oceans as blue, as blue as your eyes. And, you know, there's some sort of connection between that larger thing and the smaller thing. And they're merged together in one thing in the song. You know, it's got an image of a train whistle. I, you know, train whistle is kind of a cliche too, but it's a pretty powerful image. I mean, you know, trains still matter, as I've discussed in the podcast. I mean, I live in a town where you hear a train every day, wherever you live in it. A far, far away, a train whistle blows. Wherever you're going, wherever you've been, waving goodbye at the end of the day, you're up and you're over and you're far, far away. It's kind of like that close and far becomes the same thing. The last stanza of the poem, I guess I want to call it, it's this weird uh, like nesting of images that that Tom Waits likes to do. This is a this is a technique I think that he uses, but he uses it effectively in this "Take It With Me" song. He says, "In a land, there's a town. In that town, there's a house." So he's narrowed down from a land, the big thing, to the smaller thing, the town, and to the smaller thing, the house. And in that house, there's a woman. He's keeping focusing in. And in that woman, there's a heart I love going in and going in and going in. I'm going to take it with me when I go. I'm going to take that heart I love with me when I go because I've uh, experienced it in this world. So I don't know what that says or where that takes us in terms of this relationship between objects and, uh, you know, the temporary object that's easily lost and the permanent... I want to suggest um, place that that takes us to in our soul, I want to call it. You might not have to use that terminology if you don't want to. When I was a kid, like a real kid, like a school kid, not, not when I was 22 and drinking in the honky-tonk, but uh, we did this... Uh, memory experiment we were talking about you know mnemonic devices and uh and the teacher you know said okay so one is a bun two is a shoe three is a tree four is a door you know and you, you probably have seen this this technique you know and then you associate the thing you're trying to m memorize with that pattern and those patterns obviously you know are, are super useful mnemonics in general that's why partly why shakespeare is in blank verse uh, but anyway, you know, it's it's a it's an interesting metaphor for what we're talking about. It's a it's an appeal to connect a known thing and an unknown thing so that they're fused together. And I want to tell you, I can still remember part of that list from hate to tell you how many years ago, 40, 45 years ago or something. It's still in my head. The list that the teacher gave us, Mr. Thomas. Kind of crazy. 
And I think about that, like maybe that's the function of a lot of these objects. I can still see my buddy coming out of his pocket with those, with those uh, guitar picks, and it's probably the strongest memory I have of him. And I also treasured them because I was broke at the time, and 25-cent guitar picks weren't free. You know, eight guitar picks equaled a pitcher of beer to put it into, uh, you know, some sort of like uh, relative economic terms. And I don't even know if I would remember him. I mean, you know, I remember who one of the other people was sitting at that table. He was my best friend at the time, I think. And I don't remember the other person. I just remember there being, you know, three people. The other person's interchangeable because they're not connected to me in that way. You know, I think of my granddad's pocket knife. I want to have it. Like like when he died, I hadn't seen him in many years. And, you know, he was in Arkansas and I was in Boston. And, you know, it just wasn't happening. But uh, I'd like to have that object. But, of course, you know, I do realize that I still do and that object is just as useful to me now reminding me of uh, you know that relationship than well it's more useful to me as a as a synecdoche for that relationship than it is as a as a tool even though I would like to have it you don't know, you know, again, it's kind of a cliche, but in the Tom Waits song, he says, you know, ain't no good thing ever dies. And that's a, you know, that's a cliche, which I think is biblical, isn't it? Um, I should know. But, you know, that's the thing. It's there. It's there. I've told that story to my kid, of course, and my dad knows it. I've told it to him, and we've had that conversation. So, it's extended generationally in that way. I mean, you know, my daughter never met my granddad, but she knows quite a lot about him through a story like that and also through some objects that I do have from him. And even those that are lost, she probably remembers, and I'm sure that she is, practicing the same kind of technique of connecting, uh, you know, me to certain images. You connect those feelings to those images. Those feelings are never lost. I guess those objects are never lost either. They're not just in my memory. They're in some larger memory that we have access to still. To put it into different terms, those things are never gone. They're just, uh, they slipped past the lint filter of someone's dryer somewhere. I don't really know what this podcast was about. Tom Waits, I guess. Uh, but I'm thinking of some of these things right now for a lot of reasons because a lot of people are dealing with a lot of loss right now. And the podcast is here to spread positivity and lead you to some art that you may hopefully enjoy. Um, and I don't want to get too heavy about it, but it's hard times, you know. I'm, I'm not ignoring that basic fact. So hang in there, and I don't know. 
try to focus on the love you have, not the, not the things you've lost. All right, friends, I'll see you next week. Miss you.